What a delightful treat to see their faces and to hear the joy with which they sing. I want to talk to you this morning about something new. God wants to do something new in your life. Isn't that exciting? How many need something new in their lives? As we celebrate the resurrection, really we celebrate the resurrection every day, but more particularly today. As I was praying this week and asking the Lord for a word for you, He gave me this word. It's from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 5. He says, Behold, I am making everything new. Behold, I am making everything new. I want to suggest that it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can only have hope for that which is new. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, we have no hope. We have no hope. But because He is raised from the dead, He says, Behold, I am making everything new. Isn't that glorious? As we talk this morning, or rather as I talk this morning and you listen, I want to encourage you to be open to what God wants to do in your life. Because He does want to do something new. He wants you to leave here today a different person than when you came. He wants to work a miracle in your life. I'm reminded of Jesus' words through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6. Interesting Bible study, by the way. If you take the word new, if you have a concordance, and, and if you don't have one, every Christian should have a concordance in your own personal library. That's a book that is about that thick. It has every word in the Bible. And if you look up a word, a particular word, you can find where that word is listed. Every place in the Bible it's listed. So this week I looked up the word new. Lord, what do you have new? What are you making new? It's a fascinating study. You read everything that's new. I want to share with you a couple of the references. In, in as I said earlier, Romans chapter 6, verse 4. It's in those first four verses of that passage that the Apostle Paul tells Christians, Do you not know? He said that you died with Christ, you were buried with Him through baptism into death, and that you were also raised with Him to new life. If you are a Christian... In the biblical sense of that word, if you are truly born again, you ought to be a new creation. You're new. You're not the same old person. God has recreated you. 
Paul echoes that sentiment in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And he says, if any person, any man or woman, be in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. See, if you profess to be a Christian, and there's nothing really different about your life, you're not a Christian. You're just another religious person. This is the miracle of Christianity. God makes new. He comes into a life that is broken. He comes into a life that is prideful. He comes into a life that is hopeless. And He makes it new. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm reminded of Paul's words in the letter of Ephesians. He talks about a new attitude of our minds. When God makes new, He gives you a new attitude, a whole new direction to your life, a whole new orientation. No longer the same way. You don't think the same way. You don't live the same way. There's a new attitude. He tells us in verse 24 of Ephesians chapter 4, now to put on that new self. To put on the new self means to participate, to cooperate, to involve yourself in this new life that He has given you. It's not some psychological trick. It's not just positive thinking or positive mental attitude. This is not anything of this world. This is a new life from heaven. Peter says we participate now in the divine nature. We have a new life. We are new creatures. That means we are able to rise up above the circumstances of this world. We have a great new hope. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 8 of his letter quotes Jeremiah. And he says, we have a new covenant. There's a new deal. No longer do I live according to rules and regulations. No longer do I march lockstep with laws. No longer do I have to earn God's approval. I have it. And the stamp of approval that I have it is Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus has instituted through His death, through His burial, and through His resurrection a new covenant. Beloved, it is in a covenant of grace. We are covered by His grace. And though our sin be great, His grace is greater. There's a new covenant. A new way. In 1 Peter, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 with me, I want you to read this passage. It is so precious. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to read verses 3 through 9. Peter starts off, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, 
He has been merciful to us. He has been merciful to you. He has been merciful to me. Say this. God, you have been merciful to me. You see, He's merciful. He knows our condition. He knows our need. And He is merciful to us. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in His great mercy has given us a new birth. What kind of birth? A new birth. Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Beloved, we have, a, we have a new birth. We are born again. We are born of the Spirit. We are new creations. We've been raised with Christ from the dead to live a whole new life and to a living hope. A living confidence. And that's not all. He says, and we've been born into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade. And this inheritance, we're told, is kept in heaven for us. And we're also told that we are, through faith, shielded by God's power. By faith, we are shielded by God's power. Isn't that wonderful? Until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. My trials don't compare to the glory that is to be revealed. I greatly rejoice. He says these trials have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What are those trials for? What are the struggles for? What are the sufferings for? To refine our faith. So that when He is revealed finally, that He would be revealed to, our, to the glory and the praises of His people. Beloved, we have a living hope. We have an inheritance that's awaiting us in heaven. He says, you believe in Him. You love Him, even though you do not see Him. And you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls, a new life. Wholly different from any life you've ever known and ever lived. Wholly different from any life you could ever hope and expect to live. He's given new life. If you're a Christian, you should be experiencing this new life. A whole new orientation, a whole new direction. A whole new purpose, a whole new meaning. Brand new attitudes. A renewed mind. A transformed life. And the phrases keep coming as you read the Bible. New, new, new. Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations, says his mercies are new every morning. Every morning. 
The psalmist in Psalm 40, verse 3, says he has put a new song in my mouth. A new song. We're told that Jesus has given us a new commandment. What's that commandment? That you love one another. That's a new commandment. We're told that in the book of Revelation, there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus says, behold, I am making everything new. Glorious. Wonderful. And God's not only just talking about some future time, some future event. He's saying, I'm making everything new now, today, in your own lives. There's a hitch, however. It's important for us to understand this. And the hitch is this. Many times, we misunderstand or we mistake or we, we have a, a different definition to new than God does. Our view of new, most of the time, falls far short of what God's meaning and view of new is all about. King David is recorded in the book of 2 Samuel, in chapter 6. He's recorded to having participated in a particular event. And this is a good example of how most of us think about new. As you know, King David wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant to a permanent home in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? And he decided that the ark needed to be brought to Jerusalem in a new way. How was the ark to be transported? Anybody remember? According to the law of Moses? That's right. There were rings attached to each side of the ark through which long poles were to be inserted. And then only the priests were to carry the ark on their shoulders via the poles. No one was to touch the ark because the ark was symbolic of the very presence of God. But David wanted to improve on God's method. And so we're told that he had a new cart constructed. That's the word used. A new cart. Ox-drawn cart. The ark was loaded upon the cart. The oxen began to to bring the cart towards Jerusalem. And the writer says that the oxen stumbled and the cart began to tip and the ark began to tip out out of the cart. And a man by the name of Uzzah, a bystander, in an effort to keep the ark of the covenant from falling to the ground, being desecrated, reached out. And put his hand to protect the ark. The Bible goes on to say that once the ark was back upright, everybody applauded Uzzah for his heroism. No? What happened? Uzzah was killed. God killed Uzzah. You say, why? Why would God do that? Uzzah meant well. He was sincere. 
He was just trying to keep the ark from falling. Isn't God capable of taking care of his ark? Did he have a prescribed way to get the ark around? Beloved, when we think up new ways, when we try to improve on God's ways, we're just like Uzzah. We're sincere, well-meaning. But you see, we think, well, the Bible, you know, it's outdated. It's an archaic book. Who can understand it? It doesn't make sense. There must be a better way. There must be a newer way, a more modern way. Let's improve upon it. And so we develop all of our human philosophies. All of our new ways of doing things. Proverbs says there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. Beloved, I'm, I'm here to suggest to you, you can't improve on God's way. You can't improve on it. You can't make new. Only God makes new. Only God makes new. So as it was killed, David wanted to improve on God's plan, but his human perspective of newness is different from God's perspective. It seems to me that in the typical everyday circumstances of life, the best choice for most of us tends to focus on the external. We want new. We want new. We want new. And so we think in terms of new, we think, well, maybe if I had a new career, my life would be better. Maybe if I had a new dress, Maybe if I had a new suit, or a new car, or a new house, or a new this, or a new that, or even a new spouse, my life would be better. If I just get rid of this old one and get a new one, things would be better. I'd be happier. See, that's the way people tend to think. Beloved, our concept of newness our concept of newness goes about as deep as the new car smell <laughs> goes. You know that new car smell? Do you know that the manufacturer puts it in there deliberately? Do <laughs> you know that? They put that new car smell in those new cars deliberately. Why? Because they want that new car to smell delightful and it's a persuasive smell. You sit in that brand new car, you can't afford it, but you sit in it, you go home and you wake, they wake it all night just remembering what? The smell. <laughs> but how long does it last? Not very long. See, how long does our concept of new, when we make new, we get a new toy, we get a new this, we get a new that, and, and, and pretty soon it's same old, same old. You see, invariably, when we want new, we think outside. We play around with the outside, the external. 
How do I look? I want a new look. That'll solve my problem. That'll make me happier. Beloved, all the while, the inside stays the same. It's the inside that's the problem. It's not the outside. God doesn't make all things new by changing the outside. He wants to get to the core of your being. He wants to change you and make you new on the inside. And that inside newness will work its way out. And you will be, you will be beautiful. Your smile will be radiant. Your heart will be full. Your joy will be full. You will love. You will be content, no matter your circumstance. You see, because He makes new from the inside. He changes that which you and I could never change. It's impossible for us. Behold, I am making everything new. And it starts where? It starts inside here. Inside inside this life. The outside isn't the problem. It's the inside. We get all excited about self-improvement. Self, we get on these self-improvement plans. We get on these diet plans. You know, it's getting to be summer. I got to slim down. I got to look good. I got to take off my winter coat. Self-improvement, self-improvement, self-improvement. But guess what? God isn't in the improvement business. He prefers to get to the core of the problem. He is the God of transformation. He is the God of change. He is the creator. So when God says, Behold, I am making everything new, stop for a moment. Think about yourself. Think about you right now. Don't think too deeply. God didn't design us with the ability to be too introspective for too long. The more introspective you are, the more depressed you get. The more you look at yourself in the mirror, the more you discover the flaws. That's why you just glance at yourself. (laughs) Think about the person that you are. Most of us would say, you know... If the truth be known, there is some need for improvement in my life. My life does need some propping up here and there. I've got most things under control, but there are some some weaknesses. I do have some quirks that could be improved. I have tremendous news for you. God is not an improver. He's not a fixer. He's the creator. He's the creator. Behold, I am making everything new. I am making everything new. You are a new creation. You're not the same old person. If you are, there's something wrong.
It's the one who, who speaks out of eternity. The God of eternity who speaks into yours and my personal, intimate moments. And he says to us, very quietly and yet very powerfully, a very, very personal message. He says, I am making everything new. You say, for me. For me? Yes. Turn to Isaiah chapter 43, if you would, back in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 43, I want to look at two verses, verses 18 and 19. This passage speaks of this newness that we're looking at. Anybody who's experienced loss, anybody who has experienced failure, grief, to any significant degree, these verses are a treasure. Listen to what God says to the prophet Isaiah. Verses 18 and 19. He says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. That's instructive, isn't it? Forget the former things. I can't! I can't forget the former things. Most of us spend our life dwelling in the past. Reliving, rehashing failures, losses, hurts. We wonder why we are angry people. We wonder why we're embittered people. We wonder why we have no real joy and hope in our life. We wonder why we try to stuff ourselves with every possible external thing to bring happiness. He says, forget the past. Don't dwell there anymore. Notice what he says next, verse 19. He says, see, I am doing a new thing. Does that sound like Revelation 21.5? Same thing. Behold, I am making everything new. He says, behold, I am doing a new thing. He said, yeah, but this is, this is Isaiah. He's talking to, to Israel. That, that's where, No, no, no. No, there's a principle here. This is not just for Israel's day. This is not just for some future time. This is for today. This is for you, now, this morning. Aren't you glad? It's a new thing. See, I am doing a new thing. Now, he says, now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? It's springing up now. Now? That's what he says. I want it. Who wants a new thing now? This very instant. Oh, not all of you. Shame. <laughs> Some of you. The Renz who raise your hand. God saw those hands. You want it now. It's going to happen now for you. Something new is going to spring up in your life. He says, you perceive it now. He says, I'm making a way in the desert. 
Your life's been like a desert. He's going to make a way for you now. Now a way. Your, your life has been like a wasteland, no water. But he says, and streams in that wasteland. Now I'm doing a new thing. Beloved, if God is speaking to you right now about that newness, He's also saying, forget the past. Don't dwell back there. It's time to move on. You remember Israel's history. God had caused them to suffer greatly. See, Egypt was a wonderful place. The land of Goshen was a wonderful place. Israel had grown up there 400 years. They had prospered wonderfully. But now it's time in God's plan to break them out of there. But they were comfortable. He had to build into them a, a hatred for Israel. He had to build in them a longing to get out of Israel. So how does he do that? He brings pers persecution and suffering. So now Israel begins to suffer. And their suffering gets greater and greater and greater. And finally they begin to call out to God to save them. Send them a deliverer. And all the while God's working on the deliverer. 80 years. Moses. On the backside of the desert. He's preparing Israel. Preparing Moses simultaneously. Finally he says to Moses, it's time to go. We're going to get, we're going to get the people out. You know the story. Moses goes. And by great miraculous power, God delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt. But they're not out of Egypt three days. And the spirit of wah comes on them again. <laughs> True? And what do they want? They want to go back to Egypt. You brought us out here in the desert to die. Behold, I'm making all things new. God brought them right up, right up to the doorstep of the promised land. Kadesh Barnea brought them right there. Sent the spies over to check out the land and they came back with a wonderful report. Except the people were scared. Ten of the spies said, well, it's a beautiful land, all right, but the, but the people are like giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers. We'll never be able to do it. They've forgotten. God says, behold, I am making everything new. I've given you the land. And they chickened out. They cried out for Egypt. They wanted to go back. They were still living in their past. God didn't let them go back to Egypt. But he made that whole generation wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that whole generation died off. Unbelief. Unbelief. I'm reminded of Lot's wife. Early in the book of Genesis. Sodom and Gomorrah had grown to be terrible places of iniquity and God was going to destroy the cities. And you know the story of Abraham and Abraham intercedes for anyone who's righteous in those cities. And, and Lot, his nephew, lives in the city. 
The message comes to him to flee, he and his family. God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot abandons the city, and he and his wife and his children are fleeing. They're literally running out, getting away, getting away, getting away. God says, don't look back. Don't look back. Who looked back? Lot's wife. Immediately. We're told she was turned into a pillar of salt. Beloved, we're told... Forget the past. Don't dwell on what's behind you. If you're sitting here this morning and you've been dwelling in the past, if you've been, if you've been focusing on what's been behind, forget it. Give it up. God wants to do something new. Maybe you're in the midst of some kind of trying circumstance in your life right now. Well, His word to you also is, a, is I'm about to accomplish something completely new for you. I'll do a new thing now in your life. This is so wonderful. So wonderful. He wants to do so much for you. And He wants so much for you to see it. He wants so much for you to recognize this new thing when it comes. But you, you may be looking at yourself looking at your circumstances or your relationships. And quite frankly, you're saying to yourself, impossible, not for me. Maybe for somebody else. Maybe for that person or that person. They, I could see that, but not for me. There's no way anything new can come for me. I've never experienced anything new. It's just been same old, same old, same old. I can't seem to get out of this rut. I'm just so frustrated. How can something new happen for me? God wants to do something new. Not only for you, but in you today. Today. Beloved, He's saying to you, where there seems to be no way, where there seems to be no resource, no outlet for you, he says, I will make a road in the wilderness. Or in the desert, I will cause rivers to spring up for you. For you. Why am I so certain about this newness? How can I speak so positively, so confidently about this newness? How can I say to you, who has never experienced anything new, in the midst of terrible circumstances, how can I guarantee you this? Because I know my God. Because I know that His Word is true. Because I understand something of living by faith. Because I experience His work in my life. His mercy to me every day is new. Beloved, I want to encourage you. Impossible circumstances. Failures. Losses. These things don't change who God is. He is still the Creator. He is still the omnipotent God. He is sovereign over every circumstance and over every life. 
the God of eternity promises you and me that He is the one. He is the only one who is in the business of making everything new. Hallelujah. They say, well, pastor, how can, how, can, how can I get this? How can I get this? It sounds great. I want new in my life. I want new in my life. Well, there's four very important things that you have to remember. Four very important things. They're not new to us. We know them already. But I just want to remind you. The first thing is very simply this. Let go of the old. We've talked about that. Let go of the old. If you just hearken back to Isaiah chapter 43 verses 18 and 19. Let go of the old. Don't dwell in the past anymore. Don't hold on to your past. Well, I've always done things that way. My identity has come from who I am. No! Don't dwell on the past anymore. You don't have to go on making the same foolish mistakes over and over and over. You don't have to keep doing the same things over and over and over. You don't have to live by the same standard over and over and over. Let go! Isn't that the same thing as repentance? Think about it. Repentance means what? To turn away from something to something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let my past go. I'm not going to dwell on the past anymore. I'm going to repent of it. And I'm going to posture myself so I can move forward. Let go of the old. Listen to Philippians. In fact... Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul echoes the same sentiment. The whole first half of chapter 3 is devoted to him rehearsing his qualifications, if you will. And down towards verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. Who wants to know Christ in the power of his resurrection? Oh, not everybody again. What a shame. What a pity. Let me try it again. Who wants to know Christ and the power of His resurrection? Oh, a few more of you. Wonderful. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Look at verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained all this, I haven't reached the goal. I'm not perfect. He says, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. In verse 13, brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Or you could say it this way. The first thing I do, forgetting what is behind. How many of us are still living in the past? Still nurturing past hurts? Living with unforgiveness? Living with shame and guilt? Failure? He says, forgetting what is behind. 
and straining toward what is ahead. Am I straining toward what is ahead? I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Beloved, let go of the old. Now let me tell you, this thing of letting go, it's important you understand something. There are two sides to letting go. There's a passive side and an active side. The passive side, very simply, is that there are things that if you will release them, they will leave your life. Doesn't take a lot of energy. You don't have to exert yourself. You just have to open your hands and let them go. You have to see that they're not that important anymore. They aren't as significant to your life as you thought they were. You can let them go. I used to drink a lot. I used to smoke dope a lot. I became a Christian. I immersed myself in fellowship. I immersed myself in the Bible. I immersed myself in the church. And all of a sudden, I had no need for these other things. I just let them go. I just let them go. Open my hand, let them go. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't dance the hoochie coo. I don't do any of that stuff anymore. <laughs> I used to do it all. I was your number one party guy. No, not anymore. I party with Jesus now. You see, there's a passive side of letting go. There are things you, you can just drop out of your life. What is it in your life that you derive a sense of significance or importance from that really is a stumbling block to you that you can, if you would, just let go? I don't need this. I don't need it. You see, God wants to do a new thing. So he's told us. But he can't as long as we tenaciously hold on to the past. Oh, and we hold on to some of these things so tightly. So tightly. It doesn't matter what happened in the past. It doesn't matter anymore what didn't happen in the past doesn't matter what you believed or didn't believe. Let go. Gosh, let go. So God can do a new thing in your life. There are some stale things in your life. There are some things that used to, maybe, and they were good in the beginning. Exciting, fascinating. But they too become stale. They become worn. They become a source of a problem to you. Or a source of a problem in a relationship that you're in. Maybe it's time to let those things go. Maybe it's time to give them up. It's okay. You won't die. By faith, we're shielded by God's power. You're in good hands with God. Let go. Let go of those things. You say, but I've always done it this way. Or I've always been this way. I can't change. You're right, you can't change. But you can let go and let God change you. Don't hold on to the past. Resign from it. Leave it behind. Let go of it. 
Beloved, so many of the old things in our lives will just fall away of their own accord if we'll only unclench our grip, open our hands, and keep them open. They'll just fall off. That's the passive side of letting go of the old. Now let me talk to you for a moment about the active side. Interesting verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Notice what Paul says. <clears throat> he says, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. Paul is talking there about actively letting go. He's talking about the unseen, shameful, hidden attitudes of the heart. Things like resentment, unforgiveness, bitterness, greed, pride, lust. And we can go on and on and on and on, can't we? He said, I have no hidden, hidden attitudes. I'm, I don't have any of those things in my life. Everybody does. Everybody does. Beloved, these things are never going to leave just because you opened the door. You open the door and you expect lust to leave. Ha! You open the door and you expect bitterness just all of its own to leave. Or unforgiveness. Or pride. Doesn't leave. Doesn't leave. No, these things require action. They require your action. They require sometimes a vigorous and violent action on your part. Not just to let them go, to kick them out. Out of here, lust. Out of here, greed. Now, Paul's use of that word renounce, interesting word. I think there's an implication in this word, renounce. You may kick this thing out once, but you're probably going to have to kick it out again. You're going to have to address it again. It's going to try to gain entrance to your life. You're going to be, you're going to be going along minding your own business. And, and, and maybe it'd be for a great length, maybe years. Maybe you've kicked this thing out of your life. You've gotten rid of it. You've renounced it. And you're going along one day minding your own business. All of a sudden, boom, it's starting to get back in your life. It's, starting to, it's wanting to creep back into your life. It's starting to nibble around the edges of your life. You're going to have to say, no, 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 I kicked you out once, and I'm not letting you back in. I'm not letting you back in. Am I making sense? That's active. Active letting go. There's a passive and an active letting go. What is it that you need to actively let go out of your life? You may have made a strong commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. But beloved, I want you to know, you need to keep an eye on what's going on around the periphery of your life. There are things, indeed, that are thriving or threatening to thrive in your life that you once kicked out. They want back in. Listen to what Paul says again. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. He says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. 
If you think you're standing firm, be careful. Be on the alert. He says it another way in chapter 16, verse 13. He says, be on your guard. Stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Peter says, be on the alert for what? Your enemy, the devil, is roaming about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Some unwanted weeds you've already said no to are there again. When I was a young boy, my mom, I'll never forget this, she says, we added a new chore. She says, we're going to weed the flower beds. I said, oh, okay, piece of cake. So she took me out and she says, all right, see all these weeds? I want you to dig all the weeds out, get them by the root. I said, okay, I can do that. As soon as she left, I tried to dig them out by the root, but that's hard. So I just picked out what I could see. <laughs> raked over the rest of them, made the flower bed look new. Went back in the house, said, I'm done. Can I go play? She says, let me check. Now, she's going to get this tape, so she'll have a little, little kick out of this. She came out, and she checked the flower bed. She reached her hand down and dragged them through the mud and through the dirt, and she found roots. She says, you didn't get them out by the roots. She says, you have to dig them out by the roots. So she got me back down on my hands and knees, and I began to dig these weeds out by their roots. Beloved, you've got to kick these things out. And even though you get them out by the roots, it's not very long those weeds show up again, don't they? Even today, when I weed my rose, my rose garden at home, I see weeds growing up now and again. I say, I got those weeds out of there. Oh, they're back. We renounce hidden and shameful things. Kick them out again. Don't let them in there. Let go. Let go of the old. If you want to be in that place where God can do His wonderful work of newness in your life, beloved, then get rid of the old. Something better and something new cannot happen unless you do. Let go of the old. Now here's the second point. Are you ready? Yeah? Okay, here's the second point. Get ready. Get ready. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Get ready. Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, he says, be prepared in season and out of season. Get ready. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Most people aren't. Not for seeing and recognizing and receiving what God wants to do new. When my son was a little boy... <clears throat> I put him in sports. I'd always played sports my whole life, and so I wanted my son to play sports. 
Almost any father's that way. Right, Patrick? And I'll never forget putting him in Little League Baseball. This was a proud moment. He had his uniform. I bought him a little baseball glove. And it came opening day. His first game. And he was out in center field. Sitting. All the parents were in the grandstands. Here's the proud papa. I'm looking out in center field. My boy, what is he doing? He's sitting. I looked again. What's he doing now? He's picking flowers. What's he doing now? He's twirling. And I'm up in the stands yelling, stop twirling. Quit picking the flowers. Get up. Get ready. Pay attention. Get your mind in the game. Never heard me. I went horse yelling. Beloved, some of us live our Christian lives like some of our kids play sports. We're sitting down in the field. We're picking flowers. Or we're just twirling around. We're distracted. Our head's not in the game. We're not paying attention. See, when the ball is thrown our way or when the ball is hit our way, even if we see it, we're going to miss it. We're not ready. You got to let go of the old and you got to get ready. Anybody who plays sports who's going to be successful understands you make an error, you got to put it out of your head, you got to get ready. For the next play. If you dwell on the error, if you dwell on the failure, you're going to make another failure. You're going to miss the next ball. It's the same thing in the game of life. Not only do we let go of the old, we got to get ready. Be prepared. You want to receive new? You want to receive new? Get ready. Don't be distracted. Don't be twirling around. Don't be in your own world. Doing your own thing. Be prepared. Prepare your mind for action. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Here's the third thing we do. What's the first one? What's the second one? Here's the third one. Do the possible. Do the possible. Notice I didn't say do the impossible. Do the possible. Let me give you some examples. The three synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record a number of common miracles. Do you remember the woman 
who had the issue of blood for 12 years. Remember that? Mark records in his gospel that she went to all the doctors, 12 years, no one could cure her, and she spent all her money. Matthew records in chapter 9 of his gospel that she utters these words to herself. She's in a terrible condition. Matthew says, she kept saying in herself. Kept saying in herself. You can hear, almost hear her repeat it. If I could just, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, if I could just get to him, if I could just get to Jesus, if I could just touch the hem of his garment... And she reached through the crowd around Jesus and she was, she was absolutely determined to touch the hem of his garment. And what happened to her? She was instantly, miraculously healed. What am I suggesting? I'm suggesting that she, she was determined to do what was possible. She was determined to get to Jesus and leave the impossible up to Him. He could heal if she could just get to Him, if she could just touch Him. Beloved, there is a, there's a sermon in there. I can go off on it right now, but I won't. Are you determined like that woman to get to Jesus? Are you determined to get to Jesus? Is Jesus the center of your, the focus of your life? You want something new? Forget the past. Get ready. Jesus is passing by. Get ready. Get ready. Reach out. Not only that woman, there were, there were four guys who brought her, their friend to Jesus. This guy was a paralytic, laid out on a mat. Jesus is in town, he's teaching and he's preaching and he's in the home and the house is overflowing with people and they come to the front door, they can't get in. So they're discouraged and they turn around and go away. What happens? No, these guys are determined to get to Jesus. They're determined to get their friend to Jesus. So what do they do? They go up on the roof. You talk about innovation. They dig a hole in the roof. They lower their friend through this hole in the roof. Right down in front of Jesus. Jesus looks as you ruined the roof. Is he concerned about the things? No. He is incredibly impressed by their ingenuity and their determination to get their friend to him to do that which is possible and lead the impossible to him. The first thing he does, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now he has a little another agenda because the... the the, his enemies are there, but you read that for yourself. And then the next thing he does, what? He heals the guy. 
The guy gets up and leaves, walks away, healed. You see, the four friends, they took the responsibility of getting their friend to Jesus. They took the responsibility of doing what was possible. And they left the impossible, the healing of this man up to Jesus. Got to forget my past. I got to get ready for action. Jesus is coming. He's coming with something new. I want to receive it. Part of my receiving is to do the things that He's already told me to do. The things that are possible. To walk in obedience. Walk in faith. Yes, Lord. Die to myself. It's okay. And then the new, the new begins to happen. Jesus takes care of the impossible. That's a law of life. That's an absolute law. But we try to reverse that law. We try to do the impossible. You ever try to change another person? This is notorious between husbands and wives. When you're married, invariably, inevitably, you try to change this other person. Women take this on first. They see this guy, he has some possibilities, so all right, I'm going to marry him. Once I get my hands on then, boy, I'm going to change him and I'm going to make him into what he ought to be. <laughs> Guys, I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands of how many men. But then pretty soon, you see, then the trouble begins. And then the husband resists being changed. And then he starts looking, things need to be changed in her. And then it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. You find yourself beating your head up against the wall, trying to change this other person. You can't change that other person. That's impossible. That's God's work. But you can do the possible. What's the possible? Pray. But what? You say, Lord, change me. Change me. That's what you do. Change me. And as you change, a wonderful miracle begins to happen. You begin to see a change in the other person in response to the change in you. Imagine that. We try to reverse the things. And in the process, we end up either killing ourselves our relationship, or our spouse. <laughs> Frustrated. How many marriages have died? How many marriages in this room are on the verge right now of dying because you're, you're trying to do the impossible rather than leaving the impossible to Jesus? You do the possible. If you're a husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. If your wife, Submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Try it. Try blessing each other. Try praying for each other. A woman in our church, a few months back, after my message on sexual sanity, came to talk to me, very frustrated. She didn't know what to do. 
We, we talked about submission. We talked about this and that and the other thing. And she says, but my, but my husband is deeply immersed in pornography and all sorts of disgusting things, and he wants me to participate with him. And she says, I can't. And am I supposed to submit to all that? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? And I said, first of all, you begin to pray for him. I have prayed for him. No change. No, no, you haven't been praying for him. You have been praying against him. What do you mean? I said, let me teach you how to pray for him. Here's how you pray for your husband. God bless my husband. God bless my husband. God protect my husband. There's got to be a whole different desire and sentiment down deep from within you. You can't be praying from a root of bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness or anger because you're only praying against that person. God, bless my husband. Protect my husband. A few weeks later, she came and she said to me, I've got, I've got to tell you something. I said, what is it? She said, I'm seeing little changes begin to happen. I said, imagine that. <laughs> you see, what's possible? What is possible? Read your Bible. You discover the things that are possible for you to do. Do that which is possible. Leave the impossible up to Jesus. Remember the blind man in Jerusalem? The blind man in Jerusalem, Jesus is going to heal him, but he's going to heal him in a rather unique way. Who remembers that account? Jesus takes him, takes him to spit, mixes it with some dirt, makes some mud, puts it on the guy's eyes. Novel way to heal somebody. And then he tells the guy to do something. What does he tell the guy to do? To go wash his eyes where? In the pool of Siloam. Now, what you need to know about the Pool of Siloam is it wasn't right there. It was clear across the city of Jerusalem. So this guy had to walk through the city looking like a darn fool with mud on his eyes <laughs> headed for the Pool of Siloam. And you're an observer. You're there. You're watching Jesus put the mud in his eyes. You're watching. You're listening to him say, all right, now go to the Pool of Siloam, wash your eyes. And, and you just watch it thing and the guy starts off and he says no, I gotta go to the pool of Siloam I gotta go to the pool of Siloam I gotta get to the pool of Siloam you're hearing him mutter this over and over and over he determined to get to the pool of Siloam and, and you're watching and, a, and, a, and, a, and an interested bystander with a jug of water has just come from the, the well he's got a jug of water he sees the guy going he says hey buddy come here let me I'll wash that mud off your eyes And he says, no, no thank you. Jesus said, I'm to go to the pool of Siloam. I'm going to do what Jesus says. I'm going to go to the pool and wash my eyes. Another example, beloved. Another example of this man accomplishing the possible and leaving the impossible, receiving the miracle of sight up to Jesus. 
Read the Gospels. You see it over and over and over. Same thing. You do the possible. You leave the impossible up to Him. You do the thing that He tells you to do. Let go of everything else. And the impossible begins to take place. And here's the fourth thing. As the impossible begins to take place, beloved, move now with the new. Move with the new. That means just just receive it. Nurture it. Thank God for it. Just like that woman that I shared her testimony with you a few minutes ago. I told her, I said, keep praying. Keep praying. Thank God. Keep blessing your husband. Move with the new. Don't stop now. I'm reminded of Elijah. We'll close with this. 1 Kings chapter 18. Powerful passage. The Israelites are off in idolatry. They're worshiping the pagan god Baal. God calls Elijah up to, to bring this all to a head. He gathers up all the prophets of Baal. They're going to have a contest up on the top of Mount Carmel. Elijah orders a, a, a big sacrifice to be made. Then he gives the prophets of Baal all day to call Baal to uh, somehow consume that sacrifice. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. All the prophets of Baal weary themselves in all of their rituals. So finally, Elijah says, enough. And he calls fire down from heaven to consume that sacrifice. And then he challenges King Ahab, the whole Israelite nation, to follow God. He kills the 450 prophets of Baal. And in that context, now you need to know also that there has been a three-year drought. There's been no rain. Three years there's been a drought in Israel. And so Elijah tells his servant to go to Ahab and tell Ahab it's about to rain. Not a cloud in the sky. Not a cloud in the sky. There's no clue that's going to rain except that Elijah says it's going to rain. And then he tells the servant, he says, Now I want you to go and look at the horizon. Come back and give me a report. See if you see a rain cloud. So the servant goes up once, comes back, no cloud. Twice, three times.